morning, Redemption Gateway. I, I have to be honest, standing on a stage next to Seth it makes me insecure. Um, did you see how easily he picked up the mic and the table at the same time? He's got like strong legs, strong shoulders, just makes me, makes me insecure. Very heavy. So it's kind of amazing. So here's my question. <clears throat> when was the last time you were amazed? So if you think about the last time you said that is amazing or thought it, felt it, what was it? When was it? And what made it amazing? Being amazed can be very fun. It can be very shocking. But I want you to recollect, to bring to your mind the last time you were amazed and why. Let's pray because we're going to talk this morning about Jesus' authority to amaze. The title of the sermon is The Authority of Jesus, but I'm going to speak specifically about his authority to amaze. So let's pray. Father, I pray um, right now that you would enable me to see that which you're doing, uh, God, to hear that which you're saying. I pray for all of us that we would have ears to hear, the only ears that you can give, and eyes to see the wonderful things that you bring us through your word and the wonders that you're bringing to us this morning, very personally and very directly. God, I pray that you would heighten our senses to experience you um, because you want us to be amazed by you. So we ask you for the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So when was the last time you were amazed? You've brought that to your mind. It's probably conjured up some thoughts, even maybe some dates, or this was a few weeks ago, but you had to have thought, what is it to be amazed? One of the things about being amazed is it necessitates, at many points, a lack of experience. I wrote in my notes, actually, that oftentimes amazement necessitates naivete. Now, you may go, that doesn't sound right, or you may go, what in the world? is naivete, right? That sounds French. It just means being naive. And here's the word naive um, or naivete is a lack of experience, a lack of wisdom, and a lack of judgment. And oftentimes we use the term naivete or being naive only pejoratively. But you could think about it like this. Oftentimes parents will speak of children or people will speak of kids like they're naive, and oftentimes, most of the time, we speak about that negatively, but being childlike and lacking experience, lacking what we call so often wisdom, and lacking judgment isn't always a bad thing. When Jesus speaks about us experiencing the kingdom of God and entering into the kingdom, he says we actually have to become like little children. And you know this if you've been around kids. A lot of times, their youth enables them to be amazed and enjoy life more than you and I. Am I, am I right? Like, for instance, this nine-year-old kid in his experience for the first time with ice cream. Watch this. Let go. Let go. Let go. 
So this child, nine month old, has never seen, this little girl's never experienced ice cream, which enables her to taste it for the first time and be so amazed that she wants to engulf the ice cream. And she's grabbing hold, right, of this large scoop. And did you hear what her father kept saying? Mom's laughing. What's the dad saying? Let go. Let go. Like the ice cream became the fingers, the ice cream became the face, the face became the ice cream, the fingers became the ice cream. It was this amazement about ice cream. Now, in order to be amazed by something, that something has to have authority. Can I get an amen that ice cream has authority? <laughs> you, you last night at 9.30 p.m. when you should have been in bed, ice cream claimed its authority over your life, right? And you went back to the freezer. But that's true. If you think about the Grand Canyon, right, when you're amazed by the Grand Canyon, it's because there's an authority to it. Your lead pastor, Luke Simmons, and I met each other through baseball. And to this day, we'll have these text messages as baseball's going on. And someone will come up like Cody Bellinger for the Dodgers and swing authoritatively. That's even language that we'll use if you know baseball. It's like he swung with authority. And then that home run has an authority to it that calls us in such a way to want to text each other. Creation, oftentimes, we spoke about um, the Grand Canyon, has a beauty to it. Your spouse, at many points, or the person that you're dating, there's an authority to their beauty that compels you. The beauty of children have an authority to them that we want to get more of them, hear their laugh again, watch a video over and over again. But to be amazed, that which you're amazed by has authority to it. Now, the scene in which we walk into here in John 5 is just after Jesus has healed this man who'd been an invalid for 38 years, but the religious leaders who attempted at every level to know and apply the sacred scriptures that we call the Bible refused to be amazed. In fact, they were offended by what everybody else was amazed by. And they were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he had healed one on the Sabbath and it was against that which they knew, their common wisdom, their experience. It was against their judgment. They could have been served a little bit by a little more naivete. But they wanted to kill Jesus, and so Jesus now answers them. And in verse 9, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So this is John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus proclaims that he has authority to amaze through intimacy. Jesus has authority to amaze through intimacy. So if you're one of those type A people that would like fill in the blanks, you can just write that down and I'm going to go through this. Jesus has authority to amaze through, number one, intimacy. Jesus never ever, ever, ever 
in the Gospels views himself as an isolated individual. Jesus never acts anywhere in the Gospels as an isolated individual. He doesn't see as an isolated individual. He doesn't hear as an isolated individual. He doesn't act as an isolated individual. Jesus' operating center is intimacy with the Father. Look at what he says and think about this because we're Christians and we're sitting in a Christian church and this statement that is absolutely essential to affirm as a Christian, Jesus is God. Jesus is God and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. There's this moment in the gospels when Jesus speaks and does these amazing things and the disciples are baffled. And he looks at him and he says, and they're asking like, how is this even possible? And Jesus gives this very famous line that if you've been around the Bible much, and even if you haven't, it's worth um, looking up. He says, with man, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, these things are impossible. He teaches <clears throat> in John 15, a very famous uh, statement when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when he says that to man, with you, these things are impossible. Or apart from me, you can do nothing. That's one thing. But when he says of himself, truly the son can do nothing on his own accord. And we think, man, Jesus never looks at himself as an isolated individual. He's always in connection and in communion, in intimacy with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he, in fact, says, I don't even do anything on my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's this uh, man who some of you have heard his name, and he's become, um, I mean, truthfully, a, a mentor to me. His name is Paul Miller, and he makes this statement where he says, if you were sitting in a restaurant, <clears throat> and behind you was a man in his 30s, maybe mid-30s, and you kept hearing him say, Listen, I don't do anything unless my dad tells me to do it. I don't ever say anything unless my dad tells me to say it. You'd be like, this is weird, right? Like, this is what you call codependence at the highest level. Like, this is a problem. But that's what Jesus says. And Jesus' authority, that's what he's answering here. They're saying, how do you have the right to heal on the Sabbath? In other places, when these scenes come up, Jesus is like, you missed the whole point. Do you not realize that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? But here he's stating, and he's saying, my authority to amaze this man who'd been an invalid for 38 years and all of those who watched came about because of my intimacy with the Father. I sit and contemplate um, this a lot, and as a dad, I'm a father of four kids, and my son, my oldest son, in a week, in a few days, will turn 15. 
which is amazing. I don't know what authority is behind that, but it is amazing. My other son's 13. I have a nine-year-old girl and an eight-year-old girl. And when I try to communicate them God, I've just recently started using my two hands. And I say, well, hey, if this is God, so I'm driving my 15-year-old son to his freshman year of high school now. And every morning we'll drive, I'm using this a lot and I'm using it with my other kid. I go, buddy, if this is God and this is you, how would you measure your relationship with God? Where are you? You know, do you think about God a lot? And he's a very, he's very honest. He's like, oh, sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, me too, man. But if you measured it, like, would it be here? And he may go, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's here. I go, where do you think God wants it to be? And he goes, here. I go, that's really good, man. He does want it to be close. But he actually wants it to be more than that. He wants it to be like this. Like a vine in the branches. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Like that child who through their amazement wanted to ingest the ice cream to where the face became the ice cream, the ice cream became the face, the hands became the ice cream, the ice cream became the hands. Jesus wants to ingest the Father and wants the Father to ingest him. This is what God wants. And Christ's authority to amaze comes through his intimacy. Now he moves on and he begins to speak about power and his authority to amaze based upon what he has done. We just sang a song where we thank God for what he's done. And I would say, and what he's doing right now and what he will do. Well, he speaks about his power in this way. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and he shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel is what this translation says the niv says be amazed this word marvel comes out later again in verse 28 and this is why i come up with jesus's authority to amaze Anytime the Bible says something like it says here, where he says, greater works than these he will do, so that. Say that phrase back with me. I'm gonna say it, then you say it. So that. Okay, anytime you see something like that, that's making a connection, stop. He says, greater works than these. What are the greater works than what? What's the whole scene? Jesus has just walked up to this pool in John chapter five. And it says in verse three of chapter five, in these lay a multitude. That is a lot of people. What kind of people? Invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. But there was one man. This is where I have to discipline myself to not get on a rabbit trail. But there was one man who was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Folks, that's a long time. That's older than a lot of you who are in this room. He'd been an invalid that long and now his power goes on display and he heals this man. He asks him a question, do you want to be made well? Which you guys heard this preached before, which is kind of like, a, are you kidding? Right? It's like, nobody can get me in the pool. And he's like, my power's way bigger than the pool. Get up, take your bed and walk. And he amazes this man because the man takes up his bed and he walks for the first time. 
in at least 38 years. You don't know exactly how old he is necessarily, but he amazes him. Jesus' authority to amaze through his power, but not just any kind of power. The power of God, when it's put on display throughout the total whole of the Bible, is always personalized power. It zeroes in on one man. The Exodus zeroes in on one group of people. Now, the miracle, the greater things, are always for everybody who's watching, but it's always personalized. This miracle with this man was for these religious leaders. That's why he says, greater works than these you will see, so that you would be amazed. Think about that. He centers his power and personalizes it on this man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. He's amazed, the man that's healed. A bunch of people watching are amazed, but this group, the church group, is not. The religious leaders are not. They're highly offended. These are the ones with the wisdom. These are the ones with the experience. These are the ones who people go to for judgment on situations and issues. But for some reason, their confidence in their judgment, their confidence in their experiences, their overconfidence in their wisdom dulls their senses to be amazed by the one who has perfect communion with the Father who he himself is God. When you think about this for a minute, you've gotta think about this. Jesus' authority to amaze comes from his communion with the Father. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But understand this, his power is meant to be personalized not just for this man, but for you. For me. For us. He says, greater works than these that I just did with this man, so that... You religious leaders, but we read the scriptures so that we would be amazed, disruptfully amazed. Amazed in such a way where you're like, I don't think I'll ever be the same. We say things like that, like I had an incredible experience. I saw the Grand Canyon, I'll never be the same, right? I experienced the new Ben and Jerry's, I'll never be the same, right? I'll always be heavier from now on. His authority to amaze is always personalized. Now, when he says greater works, he does some greater things, but the greatest of all of God's works is to take down the very thing that consistently and continually and will forever attempt to dull our senses to be amazed by Jesus. It's sin. The greatest work that Christ does on the cross is that which defeats the work of the devil. That which destroys false confidences. That which dislodges false beliefs and cultures in us that dull our senses. It defeats cosmic powers of darkness. Now I know when I say the word cosmic, it's like cosmic. I know that happens in bowling, like at night when they shut down all the lights and there's a lot of different, but I mean cosmic. It means at the biggest, highest level, there's a battle between good and evil. That's why he says at the very end of our section that at the end, 
There will be a resurrection and all will come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is a cosmic battle between good and evil that Jesus in his greatest work of him going to the cross out of love defeats the powers of darkness. On the cross, he defeats the powers of sin that have set themselves up in a society societal sin that kills millions upon millions of unborn children, that sexualizes every human thing that walks even down to the point of children. A society that oppresses people and looks the other way, a society that's stuck on self at such a level that it knows nothing of Jesus' teaching to consider the needs of others as more significant than your own, that knows nothing about the power of Christ's words that to live abundantly is to love abundantly. He defeats those powers. He defeats the things within us, the sin within us, that right now, as you sit here, you know there are things in your life, I know there are things in my life that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing. And there are things in my life right now that I know I should be doing that I'm not doing, and you have things in your life right now that you know you should be doing that you're not doing. And it creates a tremendous amount of guilt. Christ died for our guilt. The greater works of Christ that he died for the sin of the church. Did you know there's sin in the church? Like a lot of it. One reason I know that is I lead one of these churches, right? But there's sin all over our church. And he purchased us by his blood in this greater work so that we would be amazed now remember the context of this. He's answering this group of people who weren't amazed. They were in fact the polar opposite. As I said, they were certain of their wisdom, they were certain of their judgments, they were certain of their experiences and they wanted to kill him. Now, when my kids say the word hate, I hate you. You're like, wow, your kids say that? You're a horrible dad. <laughs> my kids do say that to each other. More than I wish they did, but I'll always, because I remember my mom, I think one time was like, the word hate means you want him dead. Don't say that. That's horrible. So when they say they want Jesus dead, they want to kill him in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was going against their certainty in the law, he was breaking the Sabbath, he was going against their wisdom. He was going against their experiences, but he was also even calling God his own father. So he's speaking about his authority. Why in the world did the religious leaders at the time who knew the sacred scriptures better than anybody, who people went to for their judgments on the issue, not see it? There's a book um, that came out some years ago. It's a pretty interesting book. It's called Predictably Irrational. Kind of a provocative title, right? Like, oh, that's interesting. Predictably, like you can predict our irrationality. And then the subtitle is The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions. Did you know there are hidden forces that shape our decisions? That's what Dan, the author, says. I'm not certain I can pronounce the last name. That's why I just, he and I are now on a first name basis. But um, that's what he says. There's these hidden forces. Do you know actually the Bible says that's true too? This is why Paul in Romans says, don't be conformed to the world. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says that there's actually such forces in the world that are so strong, they're shaping us and pushing us into their mold at such a powerful level, we don't even know it. Now, do you know Paul writes that to the church, not the world out there? He's saying to Christians inside a church, don't be conformed to the world. Now, how in the world do we get to a point where we begin to understand these hidden forces? Well, we better realize that they're there. This is why in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake meeting together lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These religious leaders who were certain, hear that word, certain they had the law right. Certain their experiences testified to truth. They were certain they were wise. This is why Paul says, claiming to be wise, we become fools. They were certain of it. They were predictably irrational. Now, there's a very corresponding passage to this one that feels very similar in this same book in the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, verse 25. Look at what it says. But the word of the Lord, this is the word of the Lord that is written in their law, must be fulfilled. What's the word? They hated me without reason. Their hatred was irrational. Now, Dan would say predictably irrational. Here's the question. Where are we predictably irrational? Where are our confidences in places that are false that actually contribute to our lack of being amazed by Jesus? Our lack of belief in the gospel? Our lack of trust in Christ's authority? Because it isn't, folks, just out there. It's in here. It's in me that I've been shaped by these hidden forces. And Jesus is doing all of this, proclaiming his authority to amaze so that I would be amazed. So that, like that child with that ice cream, I would taste and see that God is good and go, I need to ingest Jesus. I want to become so one with you, Christ, because you are so good. I want to become so one with you that just like that child's face became like ice cream and the ice cream became his face, I want to become like that with Jesus. Now, you want to know what's really interesting about that? For those who believe this is what God promised, that he predestined us, before the foundations of time to be conformed into the image of Jesus. The promise of the gospel that he would live within us and we would live within him. Now, Jesus goes on and he begins to speak about his authority to amaze by having the judgment entrusted to him. Now, I got to be honest with you. Anytime I hear the word judgment, it kind of freaks me out. It really does. And it's meant to. So if you hear the word judgment, the judgment, you don't like to be judged by humans, but when you're like, God will judge us. And then when you, when you play out the judgment, it's like, we'll give an account. This is what the Bible says for every word that we've spoken, for every thought that we think, for every action that we've done. Do you know for Luke, 
Simmons, your pastor. It says, don't aspire to be in these leadership positions because you'll infer a stricter judgment. I said Luke because I don't want to read that for myself. <laughs> Though it's really, really true for me. I mean, it, it just brings about trepidation. Like what? Judgment. In the beginning of the book of Romans, there's this statement that the wrath of God, like this idea of the judgment, the wrath of God is being poured out even right now, right now, active tense against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of you and I. So what's the purpose of him calling our attention to this judgment specifically? And he does point it out very specifically. Look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. Why? Here's another one of those phrases like the so that. The father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the Father. This is something very, I think, beautiful and cool, you could say, about the Trinity, is that the Father's trying to give honor to the Son, the Son's trying to give honor to the Father. They're giving glory to the Spirit. The Spirit won't take any glory from self, but always drives it back to Christ. He wants the Son to be honored. So in order to honor the Son, he gives all judgment to the Son. And the Bible says this. The Bible says that all people, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, Whatever you've understood, that at the end of days, when all these things happen, every knee will bow. Every little girl will bow. Every woman will bow. Every little boy will bow. Every grown boy will kneel. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Christ will get his honor. He gives all judgment to the Son. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, verses 27 through 29. And he has given them authority to execute, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Then he says the word again, don't be amazed. The word in the ESV is, do not marvel at this. Don't marvel that he's the Son of Man. Now, in their mind, that's like the Messiah, right? Don't marvel that Jesus is God. Now, that sounds weird. Like that's the whole point of what Jesus is trying to get us to believe that he's God. But he goes, don't marvel that Jesus is God, but marvel that he's the one who will judge us. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. As you play this whole reality out, what is he bringing up the judgment for? Why is he declaring his authority to amaze us by being the one who judges is to lead to this, the last thing. Christ's authority to amaze us by loving us to life. By loving us to life. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He does not come into judgment. When you are scared and you're like, I'm scared to death of the judgment. He doesn't come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Sin doesn't just dull us, it kills us. Sin brings about death. Christ brings about life. Verses 25 and 26, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who've really physically died, and those who hear will live. 
and not die. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also has life in himself. When you fear the judgment, turn to Jesus. The Christ, the Christ, Jesus himself, whose greatest work is his work on the cross, his shedding of blood, his gasping for air, so that we might find life and find it to the full. So that he may fully and finally cancel sin and you may be transferred from death to life. Now here's the truth. Right now, in me and in you, there are gobs of us whose senses are dulled by sin, who feel deep in our souls more like we're dead than we are alive. And he's saying all that affects you because of sin, that comes at you from the outside and ultimately is even rising up from you within the inside, he has come to enliven your senses by bringing you the life of Jesus that he purchased for us on the cross. All those of us who are dying in anxiety this morning, who are dying in depression, who are dying for lack of a purpose, who are dying in our guilt for what we've done and what we're not ultimately doing, who are dying in our insecurity. He said, I didn't come that you would die, but that you would might live. As the father has life in himself, so the son has life in himself. And here's what he's saying to us. Believe. Believe the gospel. Ask God for the faith that transforms us. Jesus himself has the authority to amaze us to life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. Show us now grace upon grace. God, you tell us that one day we will hear your voice. But God, your voice is speaking right now. So God, I pray uh, for everyone who's sitting in this room that they'd hear and listen to your voice, that you'd give us ears to hear it right now, that we would not harden our hearts as those in the past who've done, have done and as too oftentimes we've done. We thank you for your forgiveness for our hardness of heart, but we pray right now, let us hear your voice and bring us to life. In Jesus' name, amen.